Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tops Talk, episode 24. And we thank you for listening in from whenever and wherever you are. I'm your host, Alex Birch. In this episode, we'll tell you about the newest baseball product release, Finest Baseball. But my main interview is with my friend and longtime baseball man, Howie Carpin. Along with covering the game for many years, he is a Sirius XM anchor, a Major League Baseball accredited official scorer, and a published author. He came on to discuss the feat of scoring 1,000 Major League games and his newest book, Down on the Corner, Ralph Kiner and Kiner's Corner. The book is available now. While Howie has his many credits, of course, I started the interview, not surprisingly, with asking him about his time collecting cards as a kid. It just came naturally. I, mean, I, was, a, I was a baseball fan as a youngster, and uh, every March or whatever, we we couldn't wait for the Topps cards to come out, to, for that box to come into the store and we get our first pack, or we buy a box and hope we get our favorite players. Uh, that's certainly, you know, it's certainly a thrill to open that package and, and hope we get our favorite guys. And to see the new designs on the cards, and I, you know, I had, I had a pretty good collection for a while, and then I got away from it. But yeah, I, I loved collecting cards, and the, and the, look, I, the ones I really enjoyed were the the ones where they had the logos of the teams on, on the card, or a little pennant that said the team. The designs were interesting, and obviously the pictures were great, and uh, you know, some of the specialized cards like the rookie cards and stuff like that, which are now worth money if you have a certain guy. But uh, it was always a thrill to open that first pack uh, in the spring the next year. And who were some of your favorite guys that you tried to go after? Well, I was a Mickey Mantle guy in the old days. I loved Mantle. Brooks Robinson was one of my guys and guys like that. And obviously the big stars in those days. I, I grew up in the 60s, a time when there was a lot of great players around and you know a very revolutionary time in society. So it, it was an interesting time to grow up in the, and be a baseball fan. Growing up around that time, I mean, in the 60s, that really was when it seemed like baseball cards were really getting more sophisticated. What do you remember about some of the cards that you used to collect? Just the designs would change. And obviously you had the stats on the back. where You, you, really, you really didn't have access to statistics like you do today. And then, you, of course, you had the old saying from some of even today's players, uh, you know, look at the back of their baseball card when they uh, want to verify what, what, the, what they will do or, or the belief in their abilities from somebody, they'll said they'll use that saying. Well, look at the back of their baseball card. <laughs> you know where the statistics are. We always look for those and little tidbits on the back of the card too. Little notes that they used to put in there. Maybe in the upper. I remember in the upper right hand column above the numbers. So you know the little interesting things that changed each year. We always look for when the cards came out. For you, you stayed in sports, and you have a long history in sports. One of those long histories is within official scoring. This season, you are going to hit a very, very impressive mark, your 1,000th game. I mean, what does that mean to you? Like, how, When you think that you're going to hit the grand mark, I mean, how, what do you think about that? Well, I think back to 98 when I did my first game, and uh, come a long way since then, and uh, obviously... I was, you know, I, like many kids that grew up following baseball, my dream was to play in the major leagues, and obviously that didn't occur, so we took an alternative route to get to the major leagues. Somehow, you know, uh, somebody believed in me at the time, hired me, and uh, 18 years later, approaching a 1,000 regular season games, I've, also, I've actually, if you had totaled them all up, the playoffs too, I'm over a 1,000. I have six World Series and 25 playoffs but, the, you know, this is obviously the regular season games are the ones you, you work the most, and playoffs are a bonus. So 
it's a, it's a, a very rewarding milestone. I'm very proud of it. I mean, you don't usually think of the official score when you go to the park or when you're watching a game on TV, except, of course, in the big moments. And when I mean a big moment, of course, like a moment in when there's a no-hitter or a perfect game going on. Uh, and I'm sure now when that when something like that happens, do you, do you get a little do you get a little antsy, or do, do you do you approach the game any differently at all? Uh, you try and stay within your you know stay believe in your convictions. Yeah, you get a little a little nervous. I mean, you one you're a baseball fan, you want to see a no hitter. Two, you may have a direct effect on it, and three, you don't want to have a direct effect on it from emotion. You want to. Uh, you know, if there's a call to be made, you want to make the correct call to the best of your ability. And it's funny you mentioned perfect game. No hitters are the, are the bugaboos for the scorers. A per- when a perfect game is broken up, uh, it's usually by an umpire's call, as we had a number of years ago with Jim Joyce and Armando Galarraga right. right. that night. But a no hitter, a, a scorer can directly affect whether it would be a no hitter or not. A perfect game player has to reach first. There's not a scoring call involved there unless it, it would affect the actual no-hitter itself, but not the perfect game because the guy reached base. He reaches base, you know, whether the score rules or not. Right. So the no-hitter is, is the one that, you know, that you, occasionally you deal with. I had, uh, before the Mets had their no-hitter from Johan Santana, I had Tom Glavin in 04 against Colorado, he took a perfect game into the eighth inning. I remember that. (laughs) So so some unknown who never really made it, Kit Pello, (laughs) hit a double into the right field corner to end that. And uh, as a scorer, at least if it's going to end, you want it to end clean. You don't want it to end on a possible call. Of course, I I remember that so vividly. I actually remember thinking that you know what, I think I'm just reserved to the fact that it'll never happen. Like I get it. Now. Like I get it. I was like, you know what? All right, Santa's never gonna come. Actually, like okay, and and the Mets aren't actually gonna get a no hit. Like I get it. I get it. Uh, right. But, you know, it's funny. And there's been three no hitters now at City Field, and uh, uh, my my scoring partner Jordan Spreckman, he scored all of them. Really. Yeah, he's had the luck of the draw. He's been there those nights. Well, yeah, luck of the draw. I'm sure he's like, you know what? You could have had any of those ones. <laughs> Just right. from I mean, stress I, level. I, I do have a no-hitter on my uh, ledger. It's a combined no-hitter by the Astros against the Yankees. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes, Yankee fans will remember that one, I'm sure. That one's hard to forget. <laughs> Um, so along with being an official scorer, of course, and being an anchor for Sirius XM Radio, which is how we know each other, of course, from my time at Sirius XM, you are also an author and have published four books and soon to be your fifth. And of course, that is Down on the Corner. And it's about not, let's say, I don't know, CCR, Creedence Clear, Clearwater <laughs> Revival, although, of course, I'd read that in a second as well. It's Down on the Corner, Ralph Kiner and Kiner's Corner, about the legendary television broadcaster for the Mets and his television show, Kiner's Corner. How did you get involved with this subject, Howie? Well, my co-author is a guy named Mark Rosenman. We did the hockey book together. That was his idea. He brought me in because we know each other from covering the Rangers and things like that. And then he came up with this idea to do something on Kiner's Corner. And I said, I don't know. I was a little lukewarm about it. I didn't really know if there was a lot there. But then we got the deal with uh, with Skyhorse Publishing. And as we started to do it, a lot of, a lot of things opened up. A lot of information was out there. Uh, we were able to contact people that worked on the show in the early years, interviewed 32 guests who appeared on the show and 
over four decades, and Pops is involved there with us. Uh, they graciously gave us permission to uh, use some of the baseball cards from those players, so they, those are get, uh, spread throughout the book next to the players' section, which really looks nice. And uh, there's a lot of background stories, uh, including stories of famous events that Ralph was at, like Bunning's Perfect Game, the Pete Rose Bud Harrelson fight in the 73 NLCS, and things like that are in there. And uh, there's a lot of names in there and people, famous people over the years. But when you introduced the book just now, you, you had a, you had the, the gist of the book. Ra- Ralph was a great player. A lot of people you know, know he's a Hall of Famer. A lot of books have been written about his playing career, not many about his television career. So that's where the focus on this book was, about Ralph the broadcaster, because apparently he was a natural. Uh, there was one time where Ralph had to, had to get downstairs to do the show, and he didn't get downstairs until about 15 seconds before the show started, got in the chair, and acted like he was prepared for a week. So he was like a natural with his broadcasting ability and his interviewing skills. He was able to make people feel comfortable. He knew his baseball. And so the, the book's focus is on the show and Ralph the broadcaster. Zvi Geffen, brand manager of Finest Baseball. Thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you again. Yeah, I know. You You are, I think, besides my voice, like the other voice that everybody hears the most. <laughs> I want to be a staple. Yeah, uh, well, you're, you're a top stock staple. You put me on payroll. Yeah. Let's talk about Finest Baseball. This is something that is going to have a, a different look to it this year, not really because of the actual cards themselves, strangely, but how you can get this Finest Baseball product. Let's talk about that first. Let's let's knock that one out immediately. This used to be a hobby store exclusive, but go into where people can get it now. Yeah, so this year we're going to try it exclusively online on tops.com. Everyone can purchase it. So if you're a store, you can go online. If you're a collector, you can go online. If you're a fan, you can go online. Purchase it at tops.com uh, for one fixed price. Uh, and this tops staple, the finest brand, has been in the tops portfolio for decades. Uh, it can be yours. So let's go into the product. Finest Greats is something that people know in last year's Finest, and we're continuing that this year. Yeah, Finest Greats is a big part of the set. So this is a collectible autograph set of the biggest names in baseball, um, the greats of the game. So uh, year over year, you have Sandy Koufax in there, Nolan Ryan, for example. This year, we this is the third year we've included the Finest Greats autograph set. This year, we wanted to include some newer names, some names that hadn't been in there the prior two years. So uh, looking over the list this year, some new names. It looks like uh, Don Mattingly, for example, is a great ad. Um, um, Edgar Martinez. So some names from the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s uh, to help spice it up and provide some diversity year over year. Everybody loves the 90s, whether you, you love it or you lo- even love to hate it. Uh, the 90s always sparks some kind of a reaction out of people. And, uh, and there's another set that screams, screams 90s. And that is the recreate of Finest Intimidators. This is perhaps my most, uh, the most exciting part of the set in my <laughs> eyes. Uh, we've recreated the 1996 Finest Intimidators design. Um, and if you look at it, once you see it, 
Um, it really reeks of 90s, like you said, in a good way. And what we've done, we um, incorporated some retired greats as well as some active uh, intimidators. So guys like Bo Jackson and Giancarlo Stanton, uh, Prince Fielder, uh, guys like Vlad, for example. So this set is just loaded. This is an insert set that also has an autograph parallel. So um, hopefully people will pull these cards. They'll get excited. They'll remember the cards of yesteryear from 1996 and spiced into that would be some low numbered autographs which uh, we hope um, pass on value to the collector for ralph kiner the the baseball player well let's talk about him for a second i mean this guy was a prolific hitter wasn't he howie yeah i mean a tremendous home run hitter for over a 10-year career I didn't see him play. I'm not that old, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not. I'm not accusing you of that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I was lucky enough to interact with him when he was doing the Met games because uh, I've been in the business since 1980 of covering the Mets and the Yankees as a radio reporter. That's how I ended up getting the job as a scorer. I was around the ballpark for a long time and got to interact with Ralph. And you know, you hear people talk about him and talk about his career. Some of the old timers that I knew. You know that saw him play and said he was a terrific player. And then, then doing some research on him, I found out his link to Hank Greenberg. How Hank Greenberg took him under his wing, and and Ralph revered Hank Greenberg, who who kind of like you know they wanted to send Ralph down to the minors, the Pirates, and, and Greenberg intervened and got them to keep him up, you know, in the major leagues. And he never went down after that. So a very interesting man. You know, his baseball career is. I wouldn't say well-renowned, as, as you know, for a lot of the younger people don't really know, not like you, because you do have a grasp of history, but he was a terrific player for a short period of time, and plus in those days he mingled with celebrities because Bing Crosby was the part owner of the Pirates. So Ralph was used to being around, you know, famous people and celebrities, and, uh, you know, he was a natural at it. He fit right in and uh, dated Starlitz uh, over the years, dated Elizabeth Taylor and, you know, people like that, so... Ralph got around the block, so to speak. <laughs> that he did, and and as someone who, you know, was in the spotlight, he and not surprisingly, as you're talking about, seemed like a natural for a television show. And so, explain what Ralph was like from from the viewpoint of some of the people that you interviewed. Uh, total reverence. Uh, no, nobody had a bad word to say about him. Total respect as a broadcaster. Uh, we talked to Tim McCarver, who was gracious enough to do the forward. Obviously, he worked with Ralph for 16 years side by side. People marveled at his broadcasting ability and his ability to ad lib and not go on, you know, stick to the script. Uh, as you mentioned, he was a natural. People respected him and they wanted to go on the show for the most part. There are some stories in there where, like with Jim Bunning, where they didn't really want to go on right away. It wasn't because of Ralph, it was because of other, you know, factors. But for the most part, Guys wanted to be on the show. They, like they, when they come in from out of town, they knew about the show, and if they won, they were hoping to get on the show. It was like a big deal, even in the Met clubhouse. If a certain Met player got on, it was almost like you know king for a day, getting on Ralph Kiner. So it was a it was total reverence from anybody we spoke to. It was not a bad word uttered. Was Ralph Kiner, and, may, and you might not have the answer to this, and, and maybe and we might have to research this, but was Ralph Kiner one of the first baseball players turned well-known broadcaster? He may have been the uh, pioneer, if you think about it. He, was, he, he may have been the, the one who opened the doors in that regard, because it's funny you brought up that point. 
in the book, we kind of indicate that he was like the pioneer. He was certainly the pioneer of these post-game shows. They just started to come along after Ralph, after Kino's Corner. I remember, and a lot of people don't remember this, there used to be a, a show called the Red Barber Show when, Bar- when Red Barber did the Yankee games. It was almost like a Kino's Corner. It wasn't the same. Mm. didn't have the same charm because Red wasn't a... Red Barber really didn't like the Yankees in a lot of ways. He was a Dodger, you know, through and through. And then when the Dodgers left, he got work with the Yankees doing the Yankee games, and they did the Red Barber show, just like Kiner's Corner. But Ralph's show was the precursor of these post-game shows. It was simplistic, and it was interesting. And not only that, in the old days, you didn't have the access you have today, obviously. When the visiting teams came in, you know, you got to see a Willie Mays as a, as a person instead of just a a figure on a screen running around. He was he became a human being to you. Willie McCovey, Bob Gibson, Stan Musial. I mean, the, the names were just, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, to see these people as real people for the first time was a revelation. Yeah, and even now, I mean, it's, it's hard to see athletes as kind of regular folks, which is the ultimate irony because there is, it's never been easier to have your comments be seen and have those athletes' comments be seen by you than now. But because of that, a lot of these guys are really tempered in what they say because they know they're being seen by everybody. Uh, but, right, it's but, a diff- different mindset. Right, and back then, it's very easy to tell from what you're saying and from myself going back and seeing old Kiner's Corners over the years that SNY would sometimes play. The players definitely seemed like they had their guard down. Yeah, because it, obviously we didn't have social media or the scrutiny or the amount of media members that we have today. It was so it was very limited. Everything was so limited in those days. Limited access. So you really didn't have to take any care to warding off outside factors as much as you do today. We'd be remiss without bringing up the kid. There is going to be a, a subset dedicated to just Ken Griffey Jr. in this set, and what a perfect time to do it, the year that he gets inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I'm glad you bring it up. So for Finest Careers, this is a program that we started last year, and we are continuing this year and hopefully well into the future. But we pick one subject, we give them a 10-card uh, commemorative insert set to, and try to peg it to a current event. This year, Griffey was perfect um, based on his induction um, into Cooperstown. So we've given Griffey a 10-card set. Um, it sort of highlights his entire career, stops with the Mariners, the Reds. We even have a White Sox card in there. Uh, and then I remember that. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> one of those ten cards is is he had a couple Griffey long balls White there. Sox jersey. That's that. right. Yeah. Uh, and we have autographed versions as well. So one of the cooler cards in the entire release, I feel like, is the Griffey die cut. It's an image of him and his dad on the same card. Um, when you see that one, you will recognize it. Uh, it really um, resonates with Griffey and what he and his family brought to the game of baseball. Now let's talk about Griffey for a second, just to. To, to wax on even more about probably the most influential player of the 90s. I mean, this is a, a 90s-esque set that, I mean, you are putting the stamp on with essentially the 90s golden child of baseball, Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah, that's right. And it's a great 
fit for Griffey to be in this brand. I mean, you look at Finest. Finest is always a brand that resonates with the 90s, uh, especially from a design and a look perspective. I think if you look at the cards this year, um, the design is pretty out there, as we always try to do with Finest. We print we print it on chrome technology, which is a shinier uh, type uh, of stock um, that gives some sturdiness. But to be the face of, of a 90s type brand, it's a perfect fit for Griffey. Um, and this year, like we just mentioned, is just uh, the time to do it since you'll be in the news very shortly. And finally, before I let you go, Zvi, it would be silly of me not to bring up finest firsts because who doesn't love rookies? Yeah, Finest First is the spot to find rookies this year. Uh, We created this subset last year to commemorate each rookie's first appearance in the Finest portfolio. So this year you have a great rookie class. We've been talking about these guys for a month or two now, but subjects featured in this insert would be Corey Seager, Aaron Nola, Michael Conforto, uh, Miguel Sano. He just cracked one last night. Um, Steven Piscotti, who I don't think is getting enough love quite yet. He's really looking like a great uh, ball player. And those are just some of the names that you'll find in Finest First. Again, that's an insert set. It also has uh, autographs as well. So hopefully paired with all the veteran content that Finest is known for, you also have these rookie autographs and rookie cards that will drive value for everyone out there. When you were doing research for the book and, and starting to write the book, what was something about Ralph and about Kiner's Corner that kind of caught you off guard? That, that something that you really didn't expect to find out about the show or about the man? The stories around the show, more the, the background stories, like for example, the bunning perfect game that I mentioned to you. We, we spoke to the producer of the first four years from 62 to 65. His name was Joe Gallagher. He was a wealth of information. And he told us the story about bunning. The day bunning pitched the perfect game was the first game of a doubleheader on Father's Day at Shea. Ralph wanted to do an in-between game show with bunning. He actually went down a little earlier than he usually did. He usually went down around the 7th or 8th to do the show. But he went down earlier because his instinct told him that this may be a special day. But obviously, he saw Bunning had great stuff in the early innings, and the hitters were having trouble. So you, you know, you watch enough ball games, you kind of get a sense that something could happen today. Ralph had that that intuition. He went downstairs early, and then Bunning came off the field, went into the visiting dugout, and Joe Gallagher kind of caught up to him and said, "You want to go on with Ralph Kiner on Kiner's corner." And then Bunning said to him, "Well, what do I get?" And then Joe Gallagher had to say to him, "Well." The guys usually come on, and sometimes we give them a gift certificate. And then Bunning referred to his no-hitter in the American League that he pitched for the Tigers. And he said, that's what they told me in Detroit, and I got nothing. And he walked away. Now, somebody must have gotten his ear because he came back because the interview was being televised in Philadelphia. This may have been the first time there was any kind of simulcast taking place on television because the Phillies didn't televise that day. OR, Channel 9, televised the game. And they were going to share the feed of the interview back to Philadelphia, a special, you know, with Ralph. And then Bunning wouldn't come on, so it kind of got scratched a little bit. But a few minutes later, somebody must have gotten his ear. Bunning came on. He did the interview. Bunning's wife ran on the field during the interview to give him a hug and a kiss and a very famous scene. And then after the game was, after the interview was over, obviously they're playing the second game. Bunning came into the control room during the second game and apologized uh, to Ralph and the uh, producer for not coming on right away. 
I mean, that that's yeah. that's the type of story <laughs> that you never think you'd get, and when you get no, it, no, I mean, I, I I never I never expected that. You know, here, here he just pitches the perfect game, and he he has the I don't know if you call it the presence of mind that he's worried about getting paid for being on. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of, kind of weird when you think about it, you know. But that that struck me. I mean, that was that was fascinating. That the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, you know, the twenty three inning game in sixty four, the second game of the doubleheader. Ralph actually went down in the eighth inning and stayed down there fifteen innings. Oh my god! <laughs> and the producer regretted it. He said it was just one regret because Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy were doing. Lindsey was on TV. Bob was on radio. They couldn't get a break. Because there was no other announcer to help them out, oh my so they gosh. had to stay. Uh, yeah, it was kind of an awkward situation. And uh, Joe Gallagher was the producer, and he said that's the one thing I regret that I kept Ralph down there the whole 15 innings because they never thought the game would go that long. They figured the Mets weren't that good; they could lose it all within an inning or two, and they wanted Ralph down there to do the show. And it turned out to be 23 innings. Yeah, and you couldn't exactly text him and say, "Hey, come on back up." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It was signal. You didn't have to use those uh, metaphors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Send down a pigeon. Um, that's, and, and I can only imagine that his clout from his career, the fact that the man's a Hall of Famer, helped him with putting other players that he got on with ease. Enormously. It was instant respect. First of all, that, that was the respect factor from that. And then when they met the man, it, it almost became doubly res- respectful. So it was a... It was almost like a two-pronged thing. You know, he had the respect as a player, and then he had the respect as a man. Once readers finish your book, what what, were, what are you hoping that they get out of it? Uh, a number of smiles and a couple of good memories if they were around to watch the show. And uh, learn a little bit about what went on with, uh, with those kind of shows in the early days as compared to what you see today where there's a show on it for every team. And, you know, just to... Just to get a, a, a grasp of, or an idea of what went on in those days, especially if you, you know, people like yourself that are under 30 or under 40 that didn't really see the show, I hope they, they enjoy it for that. I hope the people that saw the show can relive some of the great memories and, and the love they had for the program. And Howie, I know that you want to display the type of uh, celebrity input that was given to this book because Ralph and the show had such a, a big presence. Yeah, we uh, we have a slow celebrity section, uh, a couple of names, uh, uh, Gary Delabate from the uh, Howard Stern Show, Baba Bowie, George Thorogood from George Thorogood and the Destroyers. He, he was a baseball fan. He was a minor leaguer, actually, I think, and a Met fan. And... Uh, Green, the voice of the NBA, is a big, big Mets fan. He was interesting because he, we talked about interviewing techniques with Ralph and him. Obviously, Mike does a lot of interviews, so that was interesting on his part, you know, where he talked about interviewing players. And then we also spoke to Charles Grodin, who's a big Mets fan. So that section's nice toward the end. And we had a, one more section we had was an epilogue where we finished it off with uh, a hypo- hypothetical uh, piece of uh, text where. We uh, imagine if Kiner's Corner was around last year when the Mets won the National League pennant, uh, who would have came on the show during the season, the names he would have had trouble with, like <laughs> New and Ice, or when Chris Heston pitched the uh, no-hitter against the Mets, he, Ralph would have had him on the show, and I'm sure he would have called him Charlton at one point. <laughs> so so we, you know, we went with that. What we wanted to get across here is not to make fun of Ralph and the Kinerisms, which are part of his charm, 
but that, that he, he was beloved for those malaprops and things like that. And we tried to get that across in the book, just for the reverence of, of Ralph the person. Thanks for listening to Top Stock, and we hope you hear us again soon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Audioboom, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can find us on Twitter at Top Stock. If you have any questions or comments or would like to tell us your collecting story on a future episode, email us at topstock@tops.com. Special thanks goes to Clay Laraski, Leanne Minutoli, Susan LeJudai, Zvi Geffen, and Howie Carpin. This has been Episode 24 of Top Stock.